The Bible reading today is from John chapter 20, saying at verse 19. John 20, verse 19. When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called Twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, good morning and welcome to the beginning of this series. If you are new to church here, welcome. We love having new people and this is a great series uh, to explore Jesus in. If you're joining us online, it is great to have you there as well. Uh, Now, I guess when you think about it, you know, God, gods, do this, don't do that, go to church. I kind of get the simplicity of just trying to avoid making sense of religion. That's just too complicated. And just get on with life being a decent human being. I'm kind of sympathetic in a way to that kind of modern mantra that people live by. However, it is my belief that Jesus makes the best sense of life and He is the key to making sense of God. And He gives us a narrative that helps us make sense of ourselves, of suffering, of joy, of hope and love like no other. And He liberates us into life to the full, now and forever. And so, I think it's too simplistic to throw the baby out with the bathwater and avoid trying to make sense of it. It's my hope that this series will prompt us all to be encouraged in our faith or to discover Jesus uh, and continue on a journey with Him. Now, Lee Strobel, um, who's a name that might be known to us by, uh, to a few people, uh, a few years back now, he was an atheist uh, and quite, um, you know, he reflects himself on being a hard-nosed, cynical journalist. Uh, he went about the task of trying to disprove Christianity with all his cynicism and journalism, but on the way, he discovered that God was real, that He loves us in Jesus and that He's intervened in human history and he reflects, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. 
It was like the final piece of the puzzle clicked into place and suddenly everything made sense. That's my hope for us all this series. Now, I begin this series not as an intellect or a philosopher that has soared to great heights and has solved God and now wants to share with you the great mysteries that I've discovered. Rather, as a saved sinner, I'm sharing with you what God has made known to us all in Jesus and that we can read about in the eyewitness accounts of something like John's Gospel, what we had read to us just before by Mim. This series is two parts, connected, uh, making sense of God, we'll be looking at topics as, is He true? That's today. Is He good? And is He worth it? And then the second part, we'll be looking at making sense of life, particular pleasure, work and relationships. Uh, we value questions and encourage curiosity and welcome doubters, uh, as we'll see how Jesus Himself welcomed doubters. And uh, my hope is that even as we finish this uh, sermon, there'll be an opportunity for you to express doubt, scepticism, questions uh, and encouragements. And so let us begin as I ask the question, is God real? That's the question. Is God true? Uh, is He real? Uh, now, the question of what is real and what is reality has been, well, not a philosopher, it's certainly been the root question of philosophy throughout human history. Uh, but what was kind of a, a quest in academic circles and uh, in abstract thinking is now an everyday minefield. Let me give you an example. Have you seen this photo of, uh, of our Pope, uh, of the Pope, uh, skating this skateboard? Uh, and you haven't seen that before because that's AI-generated. Uh, and what, what about, for example, uh, you know, it was a few years ago, someone tweeted uh, some fake news uh, about you know, linking uh, a, a very important US official uh, with uh, syndicate crime and, and a restaurant. And that was fake news, but the next thing is someone walks into that restaurant with a gun. Uh, so, so fake news is having real kind of implications. Or what about this? I won't show you the video, but here is a, that was a video of President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, the, the president of uh, Ukraine. Uh, he was produced in a deep fake video uh, sh sharing the news that uh, Ukraine was surrendering uh, and of course that wasn't the case at all. And, and so as we look at the news, now we're kind of flooded with questions of, is that real? Can I trust that? I know it's a little bit old now, but here is Barack Obama saying this, unfortunately, too much of politics today seems to reject the very concept of objective truth. People just make stuff up. We see the utter loss of shame among political leaders where they're caught in a lie and they just double down and they lie some more. Politicians have always lied, but it used to be if you caught them lying, they'd be like, oh man, now they just keep on lying. You've got to ask the question, is that even a real quote? It's a tricky time, isn't it? Um, it is a real quote. Uh, 2016, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth. If you've not heard of that phrase before, it means something like objective facts are now less influential than feelings and personal belief. Well, we are post kind of looking out for truth and making sense of truth as some grand narrative because now what is most meaningful to me is how I feel and what I personally believe. How did we get here? Well, that's a big question that I'm not going to go into too much detail on, but it's essentially uh, academics and philosophers have been for a while now deconstructing truth, uh, but it's really had teeth uh, where people have just got sick of being oppressed by grand narratives of truth, where people have used it as a weapon uh, and where people have felt repressed and have disagreed uh, you know, uh, quite significantly with truth to the point where 
we're now living in a relativistic society, where it's just, it's my truth and your truth, there's no more big truth. And that's soaked, soaked through from politics, through the media, to social media, all the way down to our hearts. So the question of, is God real, is blended into a whole soup of confusion and apathy about truth generally, because truth is just now considered irrelevant. And with no more grand narrative, no trusted truth, we are finding ourselves in an interesting, tricky moral landscape. As summarised by Carl Truman, a Christian writer and historian, he says this, the only moral criterion that can be applied to behaviour is whether it conduces to the feeling of well-being in the individual's concerned. It's now, do I feel good, not is this right or wrong? There is no more truth, it's just how we feel. That's tricky for us to navigate through. I want to show you how the truth of Jesus will set you free. That's actually a quote from him. Uh, he said in John 8:32, uh, the truth will set you free. And we can read about that through an eyewitness disciple, John, the same John who we had read from in chapter 20. Uh, he says it, Jesus actually says that phrase to people who were already oppressed, oppressed by their slavery to religious ideas and especially their sin. That's the kind of big Judeo-Christian word used to describe living in a way that dishonours God. It's a truth spoken to real people, messy people, sinners, outcasts, religious, all. But before we fall at the first hurdle and say, what is truth? Because that's a pretty big question. I'm going for a more modest, but still controversial claim today. Simply to say that Jesus is the source of truth and we can trust Him and He will set you free. There's all kinds of things that are going to flow out of this uh, and it will, might be the beginning of a long journey. It might be just another step in your journey. But that's where we're headed today. If you've abandoned truth because it oppresses, I want you to find this truth that sets you free. Uh, and to help us understand this extraordinary claim, I want to get alongside old Doubting Thomas and let him help us appreciate the complexity and experience of understanding truth and faith and doubt. And so let's begin with our first point here on doubt and the dance towards understanding. It's not just a simple thing, understanding. So we're going to kind of go a little bit of uh, unpacking here of not just what's happening with Thomas, but what's happening in our heart and especially in our hearts in this post-truth world. So Thomas was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Uh, he was in a privileged position. He'd walked alongside Jesus. He'd seen Jesus. He'd seen Jesus do great things. He'd heard Jesus teach incredible teaching. And yet recent events had really rattled him. Uh, one of his fellow disciples, Judas, had ratted out Jesus. Uh, Jesus had then been hauled before a sham trial before Pilate. Uh, he was then uh, a, a, a crucified as a criminal and Jesus had died. So he's now got distrusted friend. Uh, he now distrusts the government uh, and he's confused by what to make of all the claims of Jesus about being the Messiah, the kind of the one of God, the one to bring about hope. He's now dead. And now they're scared of what might happen to them. But a couple of days after Jesus had died, the other disciples saw Jesus alive and they rushed back. Well, just get that right, like Jesus had died. His friends had seen Jesus alive after he had died. Uh, and they rushed back to tell Thomas, who wasn't with him at the time, we've seen the Lord, they say. What would you say to such news? Imagine you were Thomas. Let's have a bit of sympathy for Thomas, because I'm pretty sure we'd have the same response. 
Really? <laughs> is this some kind of hoax you're playing on me? Am I on camera? I mean, there wasn't cameras then, but you know, like you, you get the sense that like it would have been such a radical, kind of uh, unexpected and ridiculous idea that surely you couldn't help but doubt. There's all kinds of doubt. Uh, as we think about the kinds of doubt, here's what I imagine Thomas thinking through. I know, he might be thinking, intellectually and scientifically, that the body of Jesus would have begun to decompose by now. But like, so there's no way he's coming back from that. Uh, there's other kinds of doubt. Uh, he, my mind is not going to let me be that gullible. There's a psychological doubt. Uh, the person who kind of just is like a brain with a, you know, just a, just just hoovers in everything without filtering it, uh, often gets themselves into a bit of folly, right? A bit of strife. Uh, and so psychological doubt there is important. Um, or there's also experiential hurt. I was hurt by the betrayal of a trusted friend in Judas. And so I'm going to be very careful now who I listen to. And I'm just not sure what you're talking to me about. So, so these kinds of doubts are real doubts. And is the resolution to doubt simply blind faith? That is, I'm going to shut my brain off and my heart off to all of those things I'm worried about and say, sure, no worries, that sounds great. <laughs> no, that is not Christian faith. The kind of faith that switches the brain off is not Christian faith. So how does Thomas work through his doubts? I'll show you. But first, let me go a little further to show how we make sense of things and how we believe what we believe. It's wonderfully more complex and more interesting than blind faith, I might add. I got uh, some of these questions or claims from Sam Chan, who is an evangelist and has thought lots about how we know what we know, uh, and he lists these claims. Uh, work, work through with them, with, with me. Uh, water boils at 100 degrees centigrade. Has anyone done that experiment? Like in science class, where you boil the kind of water? No one? Oh, you've got, oh, you got two people. You can trust them, or you just, you're on your own. Um, uh, the MRI shows the cartilage in your knee is worn. That's a claim that you hear from a, a scientific person, a, a doctor, and you've got to believe them. Uh, I am your father. I can only say that to one person in the room. Um, uh, I didn't kill him. Mm, that's a claim that would have to be worked through. Uh, I know where to find the best coffee in Parramatta. I found a new place the other day. I love my wife. Here are all kinds of claims but it's interesting that in our very sort of, you know, very science-focused kind of uh, brains, very kind of like, I've got to see it to believe it kind of life, uh, we often sort of uh, condense everything up into the first category, but we have a range of categories here that need different approaches to assess the validity of those claims. So, for instance, the scientific claims at the top, uh, you go run the experiment, or you were asked to look at the MRI scans and pretend like you could read them, right? Like, there's this kind of experiments, and the way they work is you make a hypothesis, and then you run an experiment, and you test to see if your hypothesis was true, the scientific method. Uh, and so much of our learning is based on that, but it is not the whole extent of everything we know either, because there's all kinds of claims that are not scientific and can't be replicated like that. For instance, I am your father. Well, we can kind of do a DNA test on that one, so there's a spectrum here. But I didn't kill him. You can't replicate that claim. You would have to do like a, a, a kind of a, um, you know, you put someone for a trial, look at the evidence, listen to testimony. You'd have to go through all of that before you could say that is a true claim or not. 
Or if you want to know where the best coffee is in Parramatta, that's a bit more subjective, right? You can listen to me, and the only reason you'd listen to me on that is because I like coffee, and, uh, and you've tasted my coffee, and you've listened to previous recommendations, and that builds up a confidence, and you're like, maybe Mike does know what he's talking about. Or I love my wife. Um, and there you would have to ask Kel. Uh, you'd have to look at the way I've demonstrated that love uh, and, and get an assessment of, is that a true claim or not? Now, all this is to say, as we look at uh, the kinds of things that Thomas might be thinking through as he tries to assess the claim before him that Jesus is alive, he says, and for kind of good reason, I need to see and touch him. I need to replicate what you have experienced before I believe. And I think that's quite a reasonable thing to say. I need to see it with my own eyes. I need to put my hands in, 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 in the holes, the crucified holes in Jesus' hands and his wrists before I'm going to believe. Uh, there is historical and testimonial evidence. It's been given to him by the testimony of his friends, and he's not quite sure what to make of that yet. Uh, and he needs personal experience. He needs to experience it for himself uh, before he will believe. Now, what, that's what Thomas's options are as he tries to make sense of, is Jesus real, alive? Is this claim of his fellow disciples true? He has to work through these things. Now, we've been looking at, at doubts and types of knowledge, but let's just go one step a little bit further. This is put together by Tim Keller, which I found particularly helpful. Uh, we know something well when there is good reason for it, when it fits with our inward experience, and when we find trustworthy community that holds to it too. Now, the reason I put this before you is because this is kind of how we actually come to believe what we believe. There's lots of types of knowledge, lots of ways to assess it, but how we actually believe it is kind of around this stuff, and it's complicated. It's complicated because we think, like, what's the most important of these three? How do we start believing? We'd go, well, there's got to be good reasons for it. But you know what? That's not entirely true. Anthropologists, that is people who study uh, human culture and the way we think and do things, say it's the complete opposite. We start to believe because we see what others are believing and, and then we continue in our belief because it matches with our inward experience. We are emotionally led creatures and finally we have these smart brains that tries to rationalise it all and say, yeah, see, I come up with it first, right? Or this, this is how I'm thinking. But it's, it's the last to catch on in many ways and just verbalise it with fancy reason. We are complicated human beings. And I want to touch on this last one, community, because it's one of the most critical uh, and as we think about uh, a, a wrestling with our doubts, lest we avoid a simplistic approaches to truth, I think we have to see here how these three things are playing out, but particularly the last one. Now, if I've started to bore you already, just nod off for one or two more minutes, and then we'll come back to the exciting part. But I encourage you to stay with me, right? Because this part here, plausibility, as, I, as knowledge lived out in community, is really important. Now, by plausibility, uh, I, I mean kind of the probability that something is true or not. And I find it interesting that in our story from uh, John chapter 20, uh, that John makes a point of saying that John was not, uh, sorry, that Thomas was not with the other disciples initially. So there is Thomas by himself. There is a community of disciples who now have this knowledge that Jesus is alive. That's got to count for something, right? Now, it's not written here, but I just, I imagine what it will be like 
to, to live together for a week. We're told that it's a week between uh, the, the disciples coming to tell Thomas and then what happens next. What would it be like for a week to, to live with, uh, it's now 10 other disciples uh, who have seen the Lord Jesus, who have moved from fear to uh, rejoicing and then Thomas. So for a week there, Thomas is like, nah, I'm not believing it. Uh, that's ridiculous. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But surely he could not help but notice the change in his disciples, the way they are no longer defined by fear, uh, but, but this truth that's on fire in their hearts. At least that's what they claim anyway. That's got to count for something. What's going on? He must have, he must have been asking now, plausibility is a way of describing it's probably true or not. Uh, it, it's, kind of, it's a way of describing socially shared knowledge that gives people confidence to live in that knowledge. If, for example, uh, I told you that I saw a UFO last night, what would you say? You'd be like, come on, Mark. Yeah? yeah? Um, you guys are much smarter than that. What, what if, over morning tea, you chatted with five other people who said, did you see the UFO last night? You'd be like, still, but you'd at least be going, what is going on here? Like, you'd at least be curious enough to start to try and make sense of uh, what has caused people to say such things. I have no doubt Thomas would have been looking at his disciples saying, what has caused them to so radically say that Jesus is alive? So when the other disciples say, say to him, we have seen the Lord, initially that wasn't enough for Thomas. But surely it was priming him to, to, to explore what was happening. Now, if you've been invited here by a friend today to explore Christianity, the claim that Jesus rode from, that rose from the dead is a central claim of Christianity, so central that Paul will say elsewhere, if that didn't happen, your faith is useless, you might as well give up. <laughs> but as you, perhaps as a friend of someone who believes in Jesus, try to make sense of, that sounds ridiculous, to but my friend is a reasonable person. Uh, that, that kind of tension will play out in plausibility as you get to know more Christians that are reasonable, loving, good people, it gives some confidence to actually there might be something to this, uh, this claim. You're creating plausibility. Now, this is one of the reasons why inviting people to church Sharing our Christian friendship circles are so important in a post-truth world. It's also why the public failures of Christians and especially leaders hurts so much. So Thomas has been living with his rejoicing disciples for a week while he processes the claims that Jesus is alive. It primes him for what happens next. He encounters truth. We pick it up in verse 26. A week later... His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Christian truth and reality is not simply a matter of believing some claims and commands given from on high. They are presented to us in person through Jesus. 
See, Thomas's experience is far more than Thomas doubted and God opened his heart and he believed. Now, there are stories like that, but Thomas's, Thomas's story is more than that. The difference for Thomas is that Jesus came to him and invited him to explore. Do you see the way Jesus speaks to him? He says, he doesn't start with, you filthy doubter, get away from me. <laughs> he, he acknowledges his doubt and says, come and, and, and see for yourself. He meets him in his doubt and it invites him to explore and in that welcome, he encounters Jesus and Thomas believes. It's in that encounter with Jesus that Thomas blurts out, my Lord and my God. It's like he's smacked in the face with the truth. It's as though the scales of his eyes and his hearts have fallen away. It's as though everything finally makes sense to him. And it makes sense that it would be because if Jesus is who he says he is, one with the Father who created all things, the one who has now defeated death because he's raised from death, the one who embraces him with grace, with hands that were scarred for him, that he might be forgiven, then in that moment, there is a simultaneous worship and the beginning of a whole new journey to relearn all things in light of this new claim. That Jesus is Lord and Saviour. The Christian claim is that God has made Himself known to us in history, in the person of Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Saviour. It is a truth that has a claim upon you, that you are loved and that you need saving. And the testimony of many Christians is one of encountering this reality in a marvellous way, delivered from circumstances or in a great time of need or suddenly became aware of their need for God, or suddenly overwhelmed by the love of God, or suddenly uh, made aware of how they need to escape the judgment of God and freed from that. Now, we don't all get to encounter Jesus in such radical ways, and yet, we can hear through the personal testimonies of many of how they encountered Jesus in some way and how Jesus is changing their life. This is not just a Wikipedia knowledge, at the centre of all truth is a person and He comes to you that you might encounter Him. Now, Jesus knows that we are a long way from that room where Thomas met with Jesus. We cannot put our hands in Jesus' holes where the spear went through His side or where through the nails crucified Him in His wrists and His feet. And that's why Jesus says, to Thomas, you believed me because you saw me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So, let me finish with this question, is God real? What do you make of Jesus? If we can't stand there in that room with Thomas, how can we have confidence that the claims of Jesus is real, that the source of all truth is Jesus? After all, we are all creatures of modern thought, built upon the famous statement, I doubt, therefore I am. So each of us go on a Thomas-like journey of discovering beginning, a discovery that begins with doubt. And in many ways, I think this is actually quite healthy, uh, that stops us from being blind, unthinking, gullible. Now, we can't scientifically access the truth claims of Jesus, as I said, we can't put our fingers into the holes of Jesus' body but we can apply our thinking brains, 
We can apply historical analysis, asking questions about the reliability of the witness, the eyewitness, for instance, John, who was imprisoned for what he believed to be true, or, or the time between events and, and the writing about Jesus, which is, uh, for the Gospels, anywhere between sort of 30, 40 years and 60, 70 years, which is quite short in historical analysis. Uh, the number of manuscripts that we have that converge, which are thousands giving us a sense that this is more reliable than any other historical document we have. Uh, we can access personal knowledge in a way by looking at how Jesus transforms people, since this isn't just intellectual knowledge, but revealed in the person of Jesus, who draws us into the intimacy of God the Father. But to be honest, our willingness to explore these things needs to come from the bottom up. These are all top-down questions, intellectual questions, that have a place because we have brains. But the real question is, what do I have to gain? <laughs> that's, that's what really drives a kind of heart change. What do I have to gain? It's a crass question, but sometimes we're quite base. And as post-truth people, we're more influenced by our feelings and our personal beliefs than by mere intellectual questions. And so as I finish up, let me introduce you to one more character in John's Gospel, Pilate the one who Jesus appeared before in his trial. Pilate was the governor of the Roman province of Judea, where the Jews were deeply concerned with the claims Jesus was making and hauled Jesus before him. We pick it up in uh, chapter 18, verse 33. Follow along with me as I read it out. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? <laughs> is Pilate's question. But it's more of a statement, isn't it? Do you see the difference between Thomas and Pilate? Pilate says, what is truth? And then walks off. <laughs> Whereas Thomas says, I need to see so that I can believe. It is a doubt that leads in. Whereas Pilate's question of what is truth just throws mud up into the air and doesn't care about the answer, because what Pilate has to gain in pursuing truth is outweighed by what he has to lose in public opinion. His fear and personal pursuit of power wins, because while he says, I find no basis to, again, to, to charge him, he ultimately caves and has him crucified. But in Thomas's case, his doubts want answers, I want to see and his encounter with the source of all truth, Jesus, he finds everything. He finds new life. He finds the one who he believes will answer every question and desire. How plausible is it that you would see Jesus for who he is? Believe he is the one true God. I'm going to cut a portion here so that uh, maybe you can ask me some questions. But uh, let's go back to the freedom that Jesus gives us as He holds out the truth to us. 
because he brings us into a freedom from the assessment of others, because God's judgment is complete on the cross. And for those who trust Jesus, that judgment has been taken care of for you. We are freed from the tyranny of bettering ourselves because Jesus welcomes us with grace for who we are now. We are freed into a new way of living and serving because having received forgiveness, we are to love and forgive others, even at cost to ourselves. And we are freed into a purpose found because there is certain and sure hope of Jesus returning and all things centre on Him. These are the truth claims attached to the source of truth, Jesus, who comes to us that we might encounter Him and find life now and forever, because He is the way, the truth and the life. And John's whole Gospel is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. What's next for you? Keep coming along to church. Bring your doubts, ask your questions. Check out how the truth is lived out. See that we're still messy and still loved and how grace and truth soak through it all. Walk around, explore. Personal knowledge is best experienced as you walk around inside the house, so to speak. Read the Bible. See for yourself. Apply your thinking brain as you critically engage with God's Word given to us. Or join us for our next outreach course starting in Term 1. May we all, whether we've been believer for a long time or whether we're reaching a plateau where we're struggling a bit or whether we're still a fair way off and, and we have heaps of questions and, and are sceptical, my hope is that each one of us will have one question to ask as we explore Jesus and what He has done for us. Let me pray and then we'll sneak in a few questions before our last song. Father, we thank You that You have made Yourself known to us in Jesus. We thank You for His compassion on Thomas and his compassion upon us, as he meets Thomas, as he meets us where we're at, and invites us and welcomes us to explore who Jesus is. May we find him and truth and life now and forever. Amen.